Chapter Ten of The Mystery of Edwin Drood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Alan Chant. The Mystery of Edwin Drood. The Unfinished Novel by Charles Dickens. Chapter Ten. Smoothing the Way. It has been often enough remarked that women have a curious power of divining the characters of men, which would seem to be innate and instinctive, seeing that it is arrived at through no patient process of reasoning, that it can give no satisfactory or sufficient account of itself, and that it pronounces in the most confident manner, even against accumulated observation on the part of the other sex but it has not been quite so often remarked that this power, fallible like every other human attribute, is for the most part absolutely incapable of self-revision, and that, when it has delivered an adverse opinion, which by all human lights is subsequently proved to have failed, it is undistinguishable from prejudice in respect of its determination not to be corrected. Nay, the very possibility of contradiction or disproof, however remote, communicates to this feminine judgment from the first, in nine cases out of ten, the weakness attendant on the testimony of an interested witness. So personally and strongly does the fair diviner connect herself with her divination. "'Now, don't you think, Ma, dear,' said the minor canon to his mother one day, as she sat at her knitting in his little book-room, "'that you are rather hard on Mr. Neville?' "'No, I do not, Sep,' returned the old lady. "'Let us discuss it, Ma.' "'I have no objection to discuss it, Sep. I trust, my dear, I am always open to discussion.' there was a vibration in the old lady's cap, as though she internally added, "'And I should like to see the discussion that would change my mind.' "'Very good, Ma,' said her conciliatory son. "'There is nothing like being open to discussion.' "'I hope not, my dear,' returned the old lady, evidently shut to it. "'Well,' Mr. Neville, on that unfortunate occasion, commits himself under provocation. And under mulled wine, added the old lady. I must admit the wine, though I believe the two young men were much alike in that regard. I don't, said the old lady. Why not, Ma? Because I don't, said the old lady. Still, I am quite open to discussion. "'But, my dear Ma, I cannot see how we are to discuss if you take that line.' "'Blame Mr. Neville for it, Sep, and not me,' said the old lady, with stately severity. "'My dear Ma, why Mr. Neville?' "'Because,' said Mrs. Crisp Sparkle, retiring on first principles, "'he came home intoxicated and did great discredit to this house,' and showed great disrespect to this family. "'That is not to be denied, Ma. He was then, and he is now very sorry for it.' 
but for mr jasper's well-bred consideration in coming up to me next day after service in the nave itself with his gown still on and expressing his hope that i had not been greatly alarmed or had my rest violently broken i believe i might never have heard of that disgraceful transaction said the old lady to be candid ma i think i should have kept it from you if i could though i had not decidedly made up my mind i was following jasper out to confer with him on the subject and to consider the expediency of his and my jointly hushing the thing up on all accounts when i found him speaking to you then it was too late too late indeed sep he was still as pale as gentlemanly ashes at what had taken place in his rooms overnight if i had kept it from you ma you may be sure that it would have been for your peace and quiet and for the good of the young men and in my best discharge of my duty according to my lights the old lady immediately walked across the room and kissed him saying of course my dear sep i am sure of that however it became the town talk said mr crisparkle rubbing his ear as his mother resumed her seat and her knitting and passed out of my power and i said then sep returned the old lady that i thought ill of mr neville and i say now that i think ill of mr neville and i said then and i say now that i hope mr neville may come to good but i don't believe he will here the cap vibrated again considerably i am sorry to hear you say so ma and i am sorry to say so my dear interposed the old lady knitting on firmly but i can't help it for pursued the minor canon it is undeniable that mr neville is exceedingly industrious and attentive and that he improves apace and that he has i hope i may say an attachment for me there is no merit in the last article my dear said the old lady quickly and if he says there is i think the worst of him for the boast but my dear ma he never said there was perhaps not said the old lady still i don't see that it greatly signifies there was no impatience in the pleasant look with which Mr. Chris Sparkle contemplated the pretty old piece of china as it knitted, but there was certainly a humorous sense of it not being a piece of china to argue with very closely. Besides, Sep, ask yourself what he would be without his sister. You know what an influence she has over him. You know what a capacity she has. You know that whenever he reads with you, he reads with her. Give her her fair share of your praise. And how much do you leave for him? With these words, Mr. Crisparkle fell into a little reverie, in which he thought of several things. He thought of the times he had seen the brother and sister together in deep converse over one of his own old college books. Now, in the rimy mornings, when he had made those sharpening pilgrimages to Cloisterham Weir, now, in the sombre evenings, when he faced the wind at sunset, having climbed his favourite outlook, 
a beetling fragment of monastery ruin, and the two studious figures passed below him, along the margin of the river in which the town's fires and lights already shone, making the landscape bleaker. He thought how the consciousness had stolen upon him that in teaching one he was teaching two, and how he had almost insensibly adapted his explanations to both minds, that with which his own was daily in contact, and that which he only approached through it. He thought of the gossip that had reached him from the nun's house, to the effect that Helena, whom he had mistrusted as so proud and fierce, submitted herself to the fairy bride, as he called her, and learnt from her what she knew. He thought of the picturesque alliance between those two, externally so very different. He thought, perhaps most of all, could it be that these things which were yet but so many weeks old had become an integral part of his life? As, whenever the Reverend Septimus fell amusing, his good mother took it to be an infallible sign that he wanted support, the blooming old lady made all haste to the dining-room closet to produce from it the support embodied in a glass of Constantina and a home-made biscuit. It was a most wonderful closet, worthy of cloisterum and of minor canon corner. Above it, a portrait of Handel in a flowing wig beamed down at the spectator with a knowing air of being up to the contents of the closet, and a musical air of intending to combine all its harmonies in one delicious fugue. No common closet, with a vulgar door on hinges, opening all at once and leaving nothing to be disclosed by degrees. This rare closet had a lock in mid-air, where two perpendicular slides met, the one falling down and the other pushing up. The upper slide, on being pulled down, leaving the lower a double mystery, revealed deep shelves of pickle-jars, jam-pots, tin canisters, spice-boxes, and agreeably outlandish vessels of blue and white, the luscious lodgings of preserved tamarinds and ginger. Every benevolent inhabitant of this retreat had his name inscribed upon his stomach. The pickles, in a uniform of rich brown double-breasted buttoned coat, and yellow or sombre drab continuations, announced their portly forms in printed capitals as walnut, gherkin, onion, cabbage, cauliflower, mixed, and other members of that noble family. The jams, as being of a less masculine temperament, and as wearing curl-papers, announce themselves in feminine calligraphy like a soft whisper, to be raspberry, gooseberry, apricot, plum, damson, apple, and peach. The scene closing on these charmers, and the lower slide ascending, oranges were revealed, attended by a mighty Japan sugar-box, to temper their acerbity if unripe. Home-made biscuits waited at the court of these powers, accompanied by a goodly fragment of plum-cake, and various slender ladies' fingers to be dipped into sweet wine and kissed. Lowest of all, a compact leaden vault enshrined the sweet wine and a stock of cordials, whence issued whispers of Seville orange, lemon, almond, and caraway seed. There was a crowning air upon this closet of closets, of having been for ages hummed through by the cathedral bell and organ, 
until those venerable bees had made sublimated honey of everything in store, and it was always observed that every dipper among the shelves, deep as has been noted, and swallowing up head, shoulders, and elbows, came forth again mellow-faced, and seeming to have undergone a saccharine transfiguration. The Reverend Septimus yielded himself up, quite as willing a victim to a nauseous medicinal herb-closet, as presided over by the china shepherdess, as to this glorious cupboard, to what amazing infusions of gentian, peppermint, gillyflower, sage, parsley, thyme, rue, rosemary, and dandelion, did his courageous stomach submit itself. In what wonderful wrappers, enclosing layers of dried leaves, would he swathe his rosy and contented face, if his mother suspected him of a toothache? What botanical blotches would he cheerfully stick upon his cheek or forehead, if the dear old lady convinced him of an imperceptible pimple there? Into this herbaceous penitentiary, situated on an upper staircase landing, a low and narrow whitewashed cell, where bunches of dried leaves hung from rusty hooks in the ceiling, and were spread out upon shelves, in company with portentous bottles, would the Reverend Septimus submissively be led, like the highly popular lamb who has so long and unresistingly been led to the slaughter, and there would he, unlike that lamb, bore nobody but himself, not even doing that much, so that the old lady were busy and pleased, he would quietly swallow what were given him, merely taking a corrective dip of hands and face into the great bowl of dried rose-leaves, and into the other great bowl of dried lavender, and then would go out, as confident in the sweetening powers of cloisterum weir, and a wholesome mind, as Lady Macbeth was hopeless of those of all the seas that roll. In the present instance the good minor canon took his glass of Constantina with an excellent grace, and so supported to his mother's satisfaction, applied himself to the remaining duties of the day. In their orderly and punctual progress they brought round vesper service and twilight. The cathedral being very cold, he set off for a brisk trot after service, the trot to end in a charge at his favourite fragment of ruin, which was to be carried by storm without a pause for breath. He carried it in a masterly manner, and not breathed even then stood looking down upon the river. The river at Cloisterham is sufficiently near the sea to throw up oftentimes a quantity of seaweed. An unusual quantity had come in with the last tide, and this and the confusion of the water, and the restless dripping and flapping of the noisy gulls, and an angry light out seaward beyond the brown-sailed barges that were turning black, foreshadowed a stormy night. In his mind he was contrasting the wild and noisy sea with the quiet harbour of Minor Cannon Corner, when Helena and Neville Landless passed below him. He had had the two together in his thoughts all day, and at once climbed down to speak to them together. The footing was rough in an uncertain light for any tread save that of a good climber, but the minor cannon was as good a climber as most men, and stood beside them before many good climbers would have been halfway down. "'A wild evening, Miss Landless. 
Do you not find your usual walk with your brother too exposed and cold for the time of year? Or at all events when the sun is down and the weather is driving in from the sea? Helena thought not. It was their favourite walk. It was very retired. It is very retired, assented Mr. Crisparkle, laying hold of his opportunity straightway and walking on with them. It is a place of all others where one can speak without interruption, as I wish to do. Mr. Neville, I believe you tell your sister everything that passes between us. Everything, sir. Consequently, said Mr. Crisparkle, your sister is aware that I have repeatedly urged you to make some kind of apology for that unfortunate occurrence which befell on the night of your arrival here. In saying it he looked at her, and not to him. Therefore it was she, and not he, who replied. Yes. I call it unfortunate, Miss Helena, resumed Mr. Crisparkle, for as much as it certainly has engendered a prejudice against Neville, there is a notion about that he is a dangerously passionate fellow, of such uncontrollable and furious temper. He is really avoided as such. I have no doubt he is, poor fellow, said Helena, with a look of proud compassion at her brother, expressing a deep sense of his being ungenerously treated. I should be quite sure of it, from your saying so. But what you tell me is confirmed by suppressed hints and references that I meet with every day. Now, Miss Crisparkle again resumed, in a tone of mild, though firm, persuasion, is not this to be regretted, and ought it not to be amended? These are early days of Neville's in Cloisterham, and I have no fear of his outliving such a prejudice and proving himself to have been misunderstood. But how much wiser to take action at once than to trust to uncertain time? Besides, apart from its being politic, it is right for there can be no question that Neville was wrong. He was provoked, Helena submitted. He was the assailant, Mr. Crisparkle submitted. They walked on in silence, until Helena raised her eyes to the minor canon's face, and said almost reproachfully, Oh, Mr. Crisparkle, would you have Neville throw himself at young Drood's feet? or at Mr. Jasper's, who maligns him every day. In your heart you cannot mean it. From your heart you could not do it, if his case were yours. I have represented to Mr. Crisparkle, Helena, said Neville, with a glance of deference towards his tutor, that if I could do it from my heart, I would. But I cannot, and I revolt from the pretence. You forget, however, that to put the case to Mr. Crisparkle as his own is to suppose to have done what I did. I ask his pardon, said Helena. You see, remarked Mr. Crisparkle, again laying hold of his opportunity, though with a moderate and delicate touch, you both instinctively acknowledge that Neville did wrong. Then why stop short and not otherwise acknowledge it? "'Is there no difference,' asked Helena, with a little faltering in her manner, "'between submission to a generous spirit 
and submission to a base or trivial one? Before the worthy minor canon was quite ready with his argument in reference to this nice distinction, Neville struck in. Help me to clear myself with Mr. Crisparkle, Helena. Help me to convince him that I cannot be the first to make concessions without mockery and falsehood. My nature must be changed before I can do so, and it is not changed. I am sensible of inexpressible affront, and deliberate aggravation of inexpressible affront, and I am angry. The plain truth is, I am still as angry when I recall that night as I was that night. Neville, hinted the minor canon with a steady countenance, you have repeated that former action of your hands which I so much dislike. I am sorry for it, sir, but it was involuntary. I confessed that I was still as angry. And I confess, said Mr. Crisparkle, that I hoped for better things. I am sorry to disappoint you, sir, but it would be far worse to deceive you, and I should deceive you grossly if I pretended that you had softened me in this respect. The time may come when your powerful influence will do even that with the difficult pupil whose antecedents you know, but it has not come yet. Is this so? and in spite of my struggles against myself, Helena? She, whose dark eyes were watching the effect of what he said on Mr. Crisparkle's face, replied, to Mr. Crisparkle, not to him, It is so. After a short pause, she answered the slightest look of inquiry conceivable in her brother's eyes, with as slight an affirmative bend of her own head, and he went on. I have never yet had the courage to say to you, sir, what in full openness I ought to have said when you first talked with me on this subject. It is not easy to say, and I have been withheld by a fear of its seeming ridiculous, which is very strong upon me, down to this last moment, and might but for my sister prevent my being quite open with you even now. I admire Miss Budd, sir, so very much, that I cannot bear her being treated with conceit or indifference, and even if I did not feel that I had an injury against young Drood on my own account, I should feel that I had an injury against him on hers. Mr. Crisparkle, in utter amazement, looked at Helena for corroboration, and met in her expressive face full corroboration, and a plea for advice. "'The young lady of whom you speak is, as you know, Mr. Neville, shortly to be married,' said Mr. Crisparkle gravely. "'Therefore your admiration, if it be of that special nature which you seem to indicate, is outrageously misplaced.' Moreover, it is monstrous that you should take upon yourself to be the young lady's champion against her chosen husband. Besides, you have seen them only once. The young lady has become your sister's friend, and I wonder that your sister, even on her behalf, has not checked you in this irrational and culpable fancy. She has tried, sir, but uselessly. 
husband or no husband, that fellow is incapable of the feeling with which I am inspired towards the beautiful young creature whom he treats like a doll. I say, he is as incapable of it as he is unworthy of her. I say, she is sacrificed in being bestowed upon him. I say that I love her, and despise and hate him. This with a face so flushed, and a gesture so violent, that his sister crossed to his side and caught his arm, remonstrating, Neville, Neville. Thus recalled to himself, he quickly became sensible of having lost the guard he had set upon his passionate tendency, and covered his face with his hand as one repentant and wretched. Mr. Crisparkle, watching him attentively, and at the same time meditating how to proceed, walked on for some paces in silence. Then he spoke. "'Mr. Neville, Mr. Neville, I am sorely grieved to see in you more traces of a character as sullen, angry, and wild as the night now closing in. They are of too serious an aspect to leave me the resource of treating the infatuation you have disclosed as undeserving serious consideration. I give it very serious consideration, and I speak to you accordingly. The feud between you and young Drood must not go on. I cannot permit it to go on any longer, knowing what I now know from you, and you living under my roof. Whatever prejudiced and unauthorised constructions your blind and envious wrath may put upon his character, it is a full, good-natured character. I know I can trust to it for that. Now pray, observe what I am about to say. On reflection, and on your sister's representation, I am willing to admit that, in making peace with young Drood, you have a right to be met half-way. I will engage that you shall be, and even that young Drood shall make the first advance. This condition fulfilled, you will pledge me the honour of a Christian gentleman, that the quarrel is for ever at an end on your side. What may be in your heart when you give him your hand, can only be known to the searcher of all hearts, but it will never go well with you, if there be any treachery there. So far as to that, next, as to what I must again speak of as your infatuation, I understand it to have been confided to me, and to be known to no other person save your sister and yourself. Do I understand aright? Helena answered in a low tone, It is only known to us three who are here together. It is not known at all to the young lady, your friend, on oh, my soul, no. I require, then, to give me your similar and solemn pledge, Mr. Neville, that it shall remain the secret it is, and that you will take no other action whatsoever upon it than endeavouring, and that most earnestly, to erase it from your mind. I will not tell you that it will soon pass. I will not tell you that it is the fancy of the moment. I will not tell you that such caprices have their rise and fall among the young and ardent every hour. 
I will leave you undisturbed in the belief that it has few parallels or none, that it will abide with you for a long time, and that it will be very difficult to conquer. So much the more weight I shall attach to the pledge I require from you, when it is unreservedly given. The young man twice or thrice essayed to speak, but failed. "'Let me leave you with your sister, whom it is time you took home,' said Mr. Crisparkle. "'You will find me alone in my room by and by.' "'Pray do not leave us yet,' Helena implored him. "'Another minute.' "'I should not,' said Neville, pressing his hand upon his face, "'have needed so much as another minute, if you had been less patient with me, Mr. Crisparkle, less considerate of me, and less unpretendingly good and true.' Oh, if in my childhood I had known such a guide! Follow your guide now, Neville, murmured Helena, and follow him to heaven. There was that in her tone which broke the good minor canon's voice, or it would have repudiated her exultation of him. As it was, he laid a finger on his lips and looked towards her brother. To say that I give both pledges, Mr. Crisparkle, out of my innermost heart, and to say that there is no treachery in it, is to say nothing. Thus Neville greatly moved, I beg your forgiveness for my miserable lapse into a burst of passion. Not mine, Neville, not mine. You know with whom forgiveness lies, as the highest attribute conceivable. Miss Helena, you and your brother are twin children, you came into this world with the same dispositions, and you passed your younger days together, surrounded by the same adverse circumstances. What you have overcome in yourself, can you not overcome in him? You see the rock that lies in his course. Who but you can keep him clear of it? Who but you, sir, replied Helena, what is my influence or my weak wisdom compared with yours? "'You have the wisdom of love,' returned the minor canon, "'and it was the highest wisdom ever known upon this earth, remember. "'As to mine, but the least said of that commonplace commodity, the better. "'Good night.' "'She took the hand he offered her, "'and gratefully and almost reverently raised it to her lips. "'Tut!' said the minor canon softly. "'I am much overpaid.' and turned away. Retracing his steps towards the cathedral close, he tried, as he went along in the dark, to think out the best means of bringing to pass what he had promised to effect, and what must somehow be done. "'I shall probably be asked to marry them,' he reflected, "'and I would they were married and gone. But this presses first. He debated principally whether he should write to young Drood, or whether he should speak to Jasper. The consciousness of being popular with the whole cathedral establishment inclined him to the latter course, and the well-timed sight of the lighted gatehouse decided him to take it. "'I will strike while the iron is hot,' he said, "'and see him now.' Jasper was lying asleep on a couch before the fire, when— Having ascended the postern stair, and received no answer to his knock at the door, Mr. Crisparkle gently turned the handle and looked in. 
Long afterwards he had cause to remember how Jasper sprang from the couch in a delirious state between sleeping and waking, and crying out, "'What is the matter? Who did it?' "'It is only I, Jasper. I am sorry to have disturbed you.' The glare of his eyes settled down into a look of recognition, and he moved a chair or two to make a way to the fireside. "'I was dreaming at a great rate, and am glad to be disturbed from an indigestive after-dinner sleep, not to mention that you are always welcome.' "'Thank you. I am not confident,' returned Mr. Crisparkle, as he sat himself down in the easy-chair placed for him, "'that the subject will at first sight be quite as welcome as myself, but I am a minister of peace.' and I pursue my subject in the interests of peace. In a word, Jasper, I want to establish peace between these two young fellows. A very perplexing expression took hold of Mr. Jasper's face, a very perplexing expression, too, for Mr. Crisparkle could make nothing of it. How? was Jasper's inquiry, in a low and slow voice, after a silence. For the how, I come to you. I want to ask you to do me the great favour and service of interposing with your nephew. I have already interposed with Mr. Neville. And getting him to write you a short note in his lively way, saying that he is willing to shake hands. I know what a good-natured fellow he is, and what influence you have with him. And without in the least defending Mr. Neville, we must all admit that he was bitterly stung. Jasper turned that perplexed face towards the fire. Mr. Crisparkle, continuing to observe it, found it even more perplexing than before, inasmuch as it seemed to denote, which could hardly be, some close internal calculation. "'I know that you are not predisposed in Mr. Neville's favour, the minor canon was going on, when Jasper stopped him. "'You have cause to say so. I am not, indeed.' "'Undoubtedly. And I admit his lamentable violence of temper, though I hope he and I will get the better of it between us.' but I have exacted a very solemn promise from him as to his future demeanour towards your nephew, so if you do kindly interpose, I am sure he will keep it. "'You are always responsible and trustworthy, Mr. Crisparkle. Do you really feel sure that you can answer for him so confidently?' "'I do.' The perplexed and perplexing look vanished. "'Then you relieve my mind of a great dread and a heavy weight,' said Jasper. "'I will do it.' Mr. Crisparkle, delighted by the swiftness and completeness of his success, acknowledged it in the handsomest terms. "'I will do it,' repeated Jasper, "'for the comfort of having your guarantee against my vague and unfounded fears. You will laugh. But uh, do you keep a diary? A line for a day, not more. 
A line for a day would be quite as much as my uneventful life would need, heaven knows, said Jasper, taking a book from a desk. But that my diary is, in fact, a diary of Ned's life, too. You will laugh at this entry. You will guess when it was made. Past midnight, after what I have now seen, I have a morbid dread upon me of some horrible consequence resulting to my dear boy that I cannot reason with or in any way contend against. All my efforts are in vain. The demoniacal passion of this Neville Landless, his strength in his fury, and his savage rage for the destruction of its object appall me. So profound is the impression that twice since I have gone into my dear boy's room to assure myself of his sleeping safely and not lying dead in his blood. Here is another entry next morning. Ned, up and away, light-hearted and unsuspicious as ever, he laughed when I cautioned him, and he said he was as good a man as Neville Landless any day. I told him that it might be, but he was not as bad a man. He continued to make light of it, but I travelled with him as far as I could, and left him most unwillingly. I am unable to shake off these dark, intangible presentiments of evil, if feelings founded upon staring facts are so to be called. Again and again, said Jasper in conclusion, twirling the leaves of the book before putting it by, I have relapsed into these moods, as other entries show. But I have now your assurance at my back, and shall put it in my book, and make it an antidote to my black humours. Such an antidote, I hope, returned Mr. Crisparkle, as will induce you before long to consign the black humours to the flames. I ought to be the last to find fault with you this evening, when you have met my wishes so freely. But I must say, Jasper, that your devotion to your nephew has made you exaggerate here. You are my witness, said Jasper, shrugging his shoulders, what my state of mind honestly was that night before I sat down to write, and in what words I expressed it. You remember objecting to a word I used as being too strong? It was a stronger word than any in my diary. Well, well, try the antidote, rejoined Mr. Crisparkle, and may it give you a brighter and better view of the case. We will discuss it no more now. I have to thank you for myself. Thank you sincerely. You shall find, said Jasper, as they shook hands, that I will not do the thing you wish me to do by halves. I will take care that Ned, giving way at all, shall give way thoroughly. On the third day after this conversation, he called on Mr. Crisparkle with the following letter. My dear Jack, I am touched by your account of the interview with Mr. Crisparkle, whom I much respect and esteem. At once I openly say that I forgot myself on that occasion quite as much as Mr. Landless did, and that I wish that bygone to be a bygone, 
and all to be right again. Look here, dear old boy, ask Mr. Landless to dinner on Christmas Eve. The better the day, the better the deed, and let there be only we three, and let us shake hands all round there and then, and say no more about it. My dear Jack, ever your most affectionate Edwin Drood. P.S. Love to Miss Pussy at the next music lesson. You expect Mr. Neville, then? said Mr. Crisparkle. I count upon his coming, said Mr. Jasper. End of chapter 10 Read by Alan Chant of Tunbridge in Kent, England, during January 2008